Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we get started with our... Uh, teaching of the Word this morning. We need to make sure that we are in fellowship. Also need to make sure that we have cell phones turned off. I think I just heard one. Need to make sure that we are ready to focus on the uh, teaching of God's Word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, who's the one who makes these things clear to us. He's the one who stores the Word in our soul, recalls it for times of application, and is the one who uses that and developing, strengthening our own spiritual life and spiritual growth. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship through the use of 1 John 1.9, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is through your word that we grow and that we mature. Uh, The Apostle Peter wrote in his second epistle that we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way that we can come to know you is through the the written word of God wherein you have revealed yourself to us. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that we might be submissive to its teaching, that we might understand that uh, your word is that which is powerful in our lives to conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ as your character is reproduced in us. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as most of you know, I've spent the last two weeks over in Kiev, Ukraine. Ukraine is not part of Russia. They really don't like that. In fact, in the schools there now, all of the kids are brought up uh, talking in uh, Ukrainian, not in Russian, although in the large cities like Kiev and some of the other cities, they're still, uh, it's mostly bilingual and they mostly uh, speak Russian, but they really are trying to develop their own historic Ukrainian uh, culture. Of course, I spent time with uh, Jim Myers and taught at the church there, uh, the Word of God Church in, in, that he established there in Kiev, as well as the college. And he, as well as all the students, wanted me to express uh, their appreciation to all of you for letting me get away for a couple of weeks and go over there and to teach. And as usual, it was a tremendous time of, uh, of ministry. It's always interesting and fascinating to go teach in a cross-cultural environment, especially when you have to go through a translator and you have to start developing the ability to drop all your adverbs and adjectives because you just don't have time to uh, focus on the English language because everything's got to be translated and if if you're not careful, you run out of time in a hurry. So you just have to learn to cut to the really important stuff and communicate that. And it was, uh, it's always interesting to do that. It's always interesting to get the feedback from students as they hear what you've taught th- 
through a translator. And we're fortunate in that we have some very good translators uh, that Jim has developed. Uh, most of them have gone through his Bible college. Some of them, like Margaret, who does most of uh, the translating for me and for Jim, has been doing this for a long time, and she is just uh, absolutely amazing in what she is able to do. And we get that kind of feedback from uh, many of the people who come and hear her who are uh, fluent in both English as well as being native Russian speakers. So they hear her, and they're just amazed. So we're very fortunate, and Jim's very fortunate to have people like that who can uh, help communicate the Word of God into uh, that particular culture. And it's a real challenge for that ministry right now because as we've seen the American dollar uh, get weaker and weaker and weaker, it has put a tremendous amount of pressure on them from a financial perspective. But God is always faithful and always provides for them. And it's just amazing to see and to witness God's continuous provision, both in terms of people and and talent, as well as taking care of all of the all of the financial needs. So continue to keep them in prayer. Continue to pray for their the work of the students uh, during the middle week, uh, which I think was last weekend. I'm kind of confused and just borderline jet lagged right now. So uh, I think it was last weekend I was in Jatomer which is where one of his students has gone to develop a ministry. And many of you have uh, met Eager before, Eager Smolyar, young man, about 25, and he's doing a tremendous uh, work there, and he became part of the largest Ukrainian Baptist church in Jatomer. They have a, I guess the Sunday morning I was there, there were maybe three to 400 people there. It's in an old Lutheran church, or meets in what was originally a Lutheran church built, in the 1890s, the Bolsheviks converted it into a barn to demonstrate what they thought about uh, Christianity. And then uh, under Khrushchev, it was developed into a uh, some sort of athletic facility. And then through the, through the gifts and financial support of many Western uh, Christians, this congregation was given the financial resources to purchase this building and then to build an education building uh, on the back, which is new, modern, and is is very nice. Uh, the pastor there is uh, 82, 83 years of age. He was uh, imprisoned several times in his life by the uh, Soviets and tortured and has uh, an interesting testimony, but he is uh, getting... Um, as he ages, he's about to retire, and he would like Eager to take over. So we need to pray about that because Eager has, there's, while there's two or three other men that also do some uh, teaching in the church, Eager's the only one who has any uh, formal Bible training or theological education. And he is uh, he's a good, uh, good man, and he has tremendous potential and energy, and he studied... Uh, Greek and Hebrew, of course, with uh, Jim Myers, and then he's take, going to another seminary there to get additional training. So we need to continue to pray for Eager because if he were to, uh, if the Lord were to promote him to that pulpit, it would certainly be a tremendous opportunity and provide tremendous uh, a tremendous voice for the truth of God's word from someone who was uh, well trained and and well well qualified. So we need to pray for that. Well, this morning we are still in Revelation chapter 5, so open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 5. We have come to the end of this particular chapter in terms of our verse-by-verse exegesis. However, these two chapters that we've been studying give us a window into the worship that takes place in heaven before the throne of God. And embedded in these two chapters with the worship of the angels, the worship of the four living creatures, the worship of the 24 elders, we can develop a very sound biblical theology of worship. And worship is something that is very much a part of every believer's life and has been since the uh, time that Adam and uh, Eve were in the Garden of Eden, and we will study that as a, in a somewhat chronological study as we look at the doctrine of worship 
this morning as we come to the opening or the end of Revelation 5:11 just to locate us in the context we see John looking again towards the throne of the Father the throne in the book of Revelation is always the throne of God the Father the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the book of Revelation up to his return is not on his throne not on David's throne he is seated at the right hand of God the Father and at the right hand of the throne of God. And as we look at the, the, the picture of chapter, uh, chapter 5, we see that there is a scroll in the hand of God the Father back in verse 1. And a strong angel begins to ask the question, Who is worthy to open this scroll? And the scroll represents, as it were, a title deed to planet Earth. It is the fulfillment of the original, I believe, the original creation covenant God made with man before the fall, and only the second Adam is going to be qualified to fulfill that contract and to take ownership and exercise dominion over the planet. And so the angel begins to search all through heaven and earth, looking for someone worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. His inability to find someone causes John to break out weeping. He weeps uncontrollably. This is not something we expect, but he recognizes that it is, it is the enactment of this title deed that will finally bring an end to suffering and to all the consequences of the curse and the establishment of the perfect kingdom of the Messiah and failure to do so means the continuation of sin and suffering. And so he weeps, but he is stopped by one of the uh, 24 elders who says, don't, don't weep, stop weeping now because look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed. And has and is able to loose or open its seven seals. These seven seals, as we'll see, represent the seven series of judgments, seven seal judgments. The last seal judgment represents the trumpet judgments, the last trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. But these are the judgments that must be enacted in order to cleanse the earth and bring judgment of sin in in history and in time before the Lord Jesus Christ comes back at the second coming. And so at that point, he, John looks in verse 6, and behold, he sees a lamb coming from the midst of the throne, and this is the lamb who has been slain and who takes the scroll. And when he does so, the uh, heavenly chorus breaks forth in song. And so we learn something about the nature of singing and the, and the content of the praise that takes place in heaven. In verse 9, the heavenly chorus, including the four living creatures and the 24 elders sing. And first of all, in verse 9, it is the 24 elders who represent the church. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And then in verse 10, there is an antiphonal response by the four living creatures. Now, I'm not going into the details of this. Uh, You may not pick this up in your English translation because none of them quite get everything right here because of some textual issues, but we've gone through this in the past. And the uh, 24, I mean, the four living creatures says, and have made you, talking about the 24 elders, have made you kings and priests to our God, and you shall reign Upon the earth. And then we come to verse 11 where John says, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels. So up to this point, it's just been the four living creatures, the 24 elders. And he says, I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads and of myriads and thousands upon thousands, saying, and this means in the context, singing. With a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive the power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard singing to him who sits on the throne 
and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept singing, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This gives us a great insight into what worship will be like in heaven. This is the pattern. Worship doesn't grow out of a human uh, experience. We don't base worship on our own understanding or experience or what makes us feel like we have worshipped. But there are, as we will see, there are criterion in Scripture. There are objective criterion, and worship is determined by content and focus and not by uh, how it makes us feel. So that worship, as we will see, is based on truth. That means there is worship that is uh, right and there is worship that is wrong. So you have two clear absolutes. There are things that you do and things that you don't do in Scripture. There's legitimate things and there's illegitimate things. And in between, there are also areas where, there is, where you can use the word appropriate or inappropriate. And the reason this is an important concept is because we have to bring to worship something that is lost in our uh, modern American culture, and that is this idea of coming to God in uh, submission to his authority, in reverence for what he has done, and in gratitude for who he is and what he has done, so that worship is, uh, the worship that the church brings is worship that should be theocentric, that is God-centered, and not anthropocentric. And just a cursory glance at many of these songs that have written today and some that came out even in the 19th century and what was known as, as uh, American Revivalist Movement, many of these songs are very man-centered. They, you just trace the use of the first-person pronouns and you realize that it's more about what happened to me and less about what uh, Christ has done on the cross or who God is in terms of his attributes. And what we see in passages like Isaiah 6 where Isaiah is in the throne of God and hears the uh, seraphim singing holy, 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 which is what our first hymn was based on uh, that we sang this morning based on Isaiah 6 as well as uh, Revelation chapter 4. It is in that uh, context that we see this theocentric nature to worship, to singing, to praise. And the other aspect that we see is that we recognize that we're in the presence of God, that this is not something that, that is to be trivialized. It's not something that is to be reduced uh, in terms of uh, becoming very uh, informal and familiar, yet we come out of a culture that has uh, become very uh, informal in everything that it does and doesn't quite comprehend that there is a time and a place for pomp and circumstance. There's a time and a place for reverence. There's a time and a place for expressing uh, these kinds of more serious uh, tones to who God is and what he's done. And when I use the term reverence, I don't want you to go away with the idea that it's just some sort of a long-faced, somber type of a thing because God has a great sense of humor and there's a great sense of humor in the scriptures. So that doesn't mean that there's not uh, lighter elements in terms of worship. But I think in terms of the culture that we come out of, there has to be a certain correction because we tend to uh, flow in the direction of least resistance in terms of the culture around us. And this affects how people dress on Sunday morning. It affects uh, how people approach the study of the Word. And we've lost a very important sense of distinction between that which is done in church as being set apart to the service and worship of God from other parts of our life. And that goes back to the basic Hebrew word and Greek word for holy or sacred, which emphasizes this concept of being set apart or something that is distinct. It is not necessarily something that is in the uh, sort of a self-righteous sense of holy, but a sense that what is being done when the body of believers gathers together to express corporate worship on a Sunday morning is not like 
things that are done on a day-to-day basis. There's something unique and distinct about it because it is a reflection ultimately on who God is and on what Jesus Christ did. And that's what we see in Revelation 4 and 5. The singing in chapter 4 focuses on God the Father in terms of His uh, being the Creator. You are worthy, O Lord, we read in 4.11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. In chapter 5, the focus is on the Lamb. And the focus is on the Lamb, and it is stated in verse 9, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And in verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And the response by the four living creatures is that they sing Amen, which is based on the Greek, or excuse me, on the Hebrew verb Aman, which has to do with with this is true, this is foundational. Let this uh, let this be true because this is true. It emphasizes the eternal truthfulness of these these uh, particular statements. So. We come to the doctrine of worship, and in order to study this, we have to think a little bit in terms of uh, what might be going on in our own culture, because people here in this congregation come from a variety of different backgrounds. So you may look around, and you may see some folks that that you know or that you've known for some time, and uh, then you look around, you see other folks that, uh, that you've never seen before. And we have a number of visitors. It's good to see some uh some unfamiliar faces here as I come back from Kiev and some new new folks here. But people come and they have all kinds of questions about worship because they come from different backgrounds. Some come from backgrounds where there's a lot of emotion and where there is an extremely informal tone and mood to worship. Others come from perhaps a more high church formal worship. And so they have questions as to just what does the Bible teach about worship. And so we have to study these words and study worship, and I like to do it uh, diachronically. That means starting in Genesis and working through Revelation so that we can see how this doctrine develops within the Scripture as, uh, as man develops in his understanding of God's Word and as Revelation uh, progressively uh, is given in relation to the doctrines of God and the doctrines of salvation. So we have to address these things starting from the Scripture, and the Scripture then will give us a a parameter for understanding uh, some universal principles that can be applied in any situation. And just as a sort of a caveat at the beginning, it's not about formal versus informal. Uh, it's not about, some people it's formal for formality's sake. Other it's informal for informality's sake. It's not about old versus new. It's not about tradition because when you look at the word tradition in the scriptures, it's used, it's really a neutral word. It's used in terms of the tradition of the Pharisees, which was wrong. And it's used by Paul to refer to the tradition of the apostles, which is right. So, Tradition really isn't the issue in terms of what's been done because there are perhaps some things that have been done traditionally that don't have a solid biblical foundation, and there are other things that are relatively new that may may not uh, violate any of the universal principles that we find, uh, find in Scripture. We have to recognize, too, that as we look at the Bible that there are two different kinds or categories of worship. There's private worship, which is our individual worship, which is the worship of God from the individual and based on the doctrine that's in his soul and his response to what God is doing in his or her life. On the other hand, we also have the development of corporate worship. And in corporate worship, we see the development of orchestras, the development of choirs, the development of a a certain ritual, and we look in vain to find where's the uh, revelation that gives this kind of information. You have 
certain rituals that are prescribed in uh, Exodus and Leviticus related to the uh, ritual worship in the tabernacle and later in the temple, but you never find any description of, uh, of what should be sung or the singing of praises, yet there's clearly some kind of information that precedes that, and uh, we'll look at that uh, a little bit as we go through this particular study. So it's important to understand that we're going to, we don't want to be biblical, and the Bible gives us certain parameters for worship. There's movement, flexibility within those parameters because you have different cultures, and different, but different cultures can express their worship still within those those parameters. When I was at the church in Jatomer last week, there was a group that played and there was singing. Of course, I couldn't understand anything about the words because it's all in Russian. But it was fascinating to listen to the music, especially as I was uh, working on this particular series and just thinking about how the uh, how the music impacted the words and some things. Uh, in that area, we have to understand that in our culture that we have people who are basically pretty ignorant of how our culture has affected their tastes. The Bible calls this worldliness. Uh, I think worldliness is a great uh, word for thinking about the culture that develops in any civilization, whether it's in Africa or India or Western Europe or Asia or North America there are certain values that develop that are apart from God's Word. We usually refer to this as human viewpoint or paganism or something, some term similar to that. And so that produces its own art forms, both in terms of visual art as well as in terms of music. And then when you have the introduction of biblical absolutes into these cultures, then there is a shift that takes place in how they understand or experience Reality, and that works itself out in terms of how they uh, express their view of reality in terms of both visual art and music art. And last year I spent a lot of time going through that and developing that historically. But what happens is you get people in America who are uh, sadly historically uh, myopic and uh, they are pretty much untrained in terms of how uh, the development of different ideas in history affect things. So uh, every generation seems to think that they've got a newer, better, fresher way of doing everything, and that's not, not necessarily true. So we have to be willing to have some objectivity to evaluate our own understanding, our own understanding of worship. Furthermore, we have to understand what worship is today in light of this, because the term worship has unfortunately become restricted and in many contexts, worship equals singing, period. And now you go to many churches, and they have a worship leader that's not the pastor, it's the song leader. And then you have the pastor, and oh yeah, we tack 15 minutes of the Bible on at the end, so it appears like we're, we're, uh, we're Christian. But real worship takes place in that 45 minutes that precedes the teaching of the Word when we all get to impress God with our, our singing and how this has uh, shaped our feelings. So this may challenge some of you. You may have never heard anybody critique this before, and uh, it may sort of leave you a little unsettled, but maybe this is something you need to listen to, that uh, a lot of things that are happening today are not necessarily of the Holy Spirit or uh, biblical in their foundation. So we need to answer some key questions, like is worship synonymous with singing? What's the relationship of worship uh, with praise. Uh, what about concepts such as spontaneity or uh, the idea of being extemporaneous in prayer or singing or other aspects of worship? In some church cultures, the uh, whole idea is that we need to be spontaneous and there needs to be this sense of, uh, of immediacy so that if God the Holy Spirit leads me in a different direction today, then I can go that way. And I've heard pastors talk about the fact that, well, we don't want to plan what's going to happen in six months because we want to leave room for, in case the Holy Spirit leads us in a different direction. I often scratch my head and say, well, if the Holy Spirit wants quality, 
and I believe he does, we're to do all things as unto the Lord, then don't you think that he would lead us in time to do the study and the research of, and planning and not come off with some sort of a halfway prepared uh, service simply because the Holy Spirit operates at the last minute. I don't think the Holy Spirit's a procrastinator. But this is viewed in some, in some circles as being, as being more spiritual because we're going to have everything very spontaneous and uh, emphasize the extemporaneous. So we need to look at those things. Then we need to look at what the relationship is between the singing of praise and, and what, what content should be in hymns in relationship to the teaching of the Word because the teaching of the Word is the primary focus in all worship because it is through the Word of God that we learn who God is and what He has done and we learn how to think in terms of His revelation and not in terms of our own emotions and our own feelings. And unfortunately, we live in a world where worship has been defined so subjectively that we have lost sight of this. And often I find myself in conversations with people who don't even realize how subjective they are in their view of worship because they're so immersed in it. So once again, objectivity only comes uh, from the Word. So let's begin with our study on the doctrine of, of worship where we see this in the last verse of Revelation chapter 5 that the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. What does it mean to worship God? Well, first and foremost, we have our key words in both Hebrew for the Old Testament and Greek for the New Testament. The Hebrew word, the first Hebrew word that is translated worship a number of times is the word avad. This, it means to work, to be worked. It has the idea of service. And it has the idea, ultimately, of serving God. The first time we see this is in Genesis 2.15, when the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to tend, which means to work or to serve, to tend the garden and to keep it. So this, from the very beginning, even in the garden, there is an aspect of worship in terms of serving God, in terms of the abilities, talents, that God gives each and every one of us. And we serve God by taking that which he has given us and using it for his honor and glory, understanding that as his creatures, those in the image and likeness of God, we are to reflect who he is and what he has done in terms of everything that we do. So that's the idea in the broader word, Avad. It's also used in the Mosaic Law and passages like Deuteronomy 6.13. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve, there's the word Avad, serve him and shall take oaths in his name. And in terms of the context of the Mosaic Law, that which precedes service is a fear of the Lord. Now this is a fear that is not simply respect. It goes beyond uh, respect. And I remember uh, probably the best thing that I can think of in terms of my experience is the fact that I had a respect for my uh, parents and a respect for my father. But if I was disobedient, there was an element of fear to that respect. I know some of you can relate to that. And that's the idea here because the fear of the Lord is not only a recognition that God is the creator God of the heavens and the earth to whom we owe everything, But there's also a recognition that there is eventual accountability and judgment. And this is one of the things that was brought out in the reading this morning when uh, Ike read from the Psalms, is that there is this anticipation that God is going to come and there is eventual accountability for believers at the judgment seat of Christ and there will be eventual accountability for unbelievers at the great white throne judgment. But this adds this sense of seriousness to our living because ultimately there is accountability before God. The second word that is used is a word that has uh, generated some debate recently. 
In fact, when I I taught this a year ago, I was using an older lexicon at the time, uh, which is the which uh, identified the root of this word as shakach, which is what I had always uh, seen and studied in the past. But uh, in terms of this study, I was doing some work in current lexicons. And now it is believed, based on uh, data found at Ugarit and other cognate languages, that this is, uh, shakha is not the root. The root is a, a second form of hava. It appears only in the hishtafet form, and it means to worship, to bow down, to do obeisance. And so that the core idea that we see in both serve and in uh, the word to worship, to bow down, is this idea of a recognition of divine authority and that the core idea in worship is the subordination of my will to God's will. And therefore, that means that we have to know what God's will is. And the only way we can know God's will is through the study of His Word. So the, the, the idea in worship has to do with respect, it has to do with submission to authority, and uh, honoring him for who he is and what he has done. Now, the first time we run into this word occurs in Genesis chapter 22, verse 5. Some of you are familiar with that context. This is at the end of Abraham's life when God has appeared to Abraham and told him that he is to take his son, his only son, the promised son, Isaac, and he is to take him to the... um, mountain country, the hills of around Jerusalem, the hills of Moriah, where he is to uh, sacrifice him to God and as a human sacrifice. And so Abraham uh, takes him along with the servant, and as they approach uh, the area, Abraham says to his uh, servant, he says, stay here with the donkey, and the lad and I are going to go yonder. See, he was from... East Texas. We will go yonder and worship. And so it has this idea, uh, worship relates to sacrifice in this case, but it is honoring and obeying God. Even though what God was asking him to do seemed to, or would seem to us to violate uh, all uh, protocol and all standards to have a human sacrifice, Abraham by this time had reached a level of maturity and understanding of God and God's promise where, according to Hebrews 11, Abraham understood that even if God allowed him to carry out the sacrifice, then God, in order to uh, be true to his promise, would bring Isaac back from the dead. So we see that that Abraham is not going to let his uh, finite human understanding or emotions shape what he does. He is going to be completely subservient to God's authority. And that is what worship is. Worship, is, as we'll see, is subordinating all of our thinking in every area of life to the authority of God's Word. We interpret God's creation first by understanding it in terms of how it's been revealed in the Scripture, and then... Uh, we go to the details of creation, not the other way around. But unfortunately, in the history of, of uh, Christianity, and even further back in the Old Testament, people want to determine their categories and their framework from, from creation, from rationalism or empiricism, and then take those categories and impose them on God's revelation, which always leads to misinterpretation. So we have to start with God's Word and subordinate our thinking uh, to God's Word. Another passage, second passage, where we have this word appear is in Genesis 24:26. This is just a couple of chapters later. And there we read that uh, Abraham has sent his servant to find a bride for Isaac and sent him back to the uh, area of Padan Aram, the home country where he has relatives. And as this servant approaches, he has prayed to God that God would lead him to the right uh, woman for Isaac and that as God uh, takes him there and he comes to the well, he, dis- he uh, meets Rebekah and he 
uh, recognizes that this is the woman that God has uh, designated for Isaac. And so he bows his head and he worships the Lord. And here we see the idea that he is being thankful. That's the primary idea here. He is recognizing in terms of his his circumstances, his experience, that as he has has gone through what he could do in terms of his finite understanding to identify uh, who would be the best bride for Isaac, God has indeed superintended the circumstances and led him to the right individual. And so he is subordinating, once again, his will to God's will and thanking God for having made this clear and apparent to him. And in verse 48, again we read, And I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, who had led me in the way of truth to take the daughter of my master's brother for his son. And a second thing that we see about worship here is that it is God-centered. It is not based on uh, our feelings or our experiences, but it is based on who God is and his actions in our lives. So it is also a response to God's grace in our life. Well, to really understand God's grace, you have to understand God's word, because the only way we really come to know who God is and what he has provided for us is through the study of his word. And it is as we study his word, we realize how great and magnificent His grace is that he has provided this incredible salvation for us that has taken care of all the problems of sin in our life. He has paid the penalty in full, and at the cross, Jesus Christ paid that penalty when God the Father imputed our sins to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he has redeemed us, as our passage in Revelation 5 teaches, he has redeemed us by the blood that is the spiritual substitutionary death of Christ on the cross, and he has paid in full. That's that word redeem. It means to pay the price. He's paid in full the penalty for our sins. And as Martin Luther observed, how can anyone who has accurately understood what this means not break forth in song and rejoicing over all that God has done for us. So singing is not just something that was picked up traditionally, but it is something that was understood to be a part of worship from the Old Testament uh, times. In fact, when you read in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, one of our favorite passages around here, we're told that we are to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And then there are a series of participles that follow, uh, beginning in Ephesians 5.19, that describe the consequences in someone's life if they are filled by the Holy Spirit. And the first thing that's mentioned is singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making joy in your heart to the Lord. Now, one question, I, I often ask this question about just, claiming promises, I say, how many promises have you memorized? Don't, show, don't waste, raise your hand. I'm not going to embarrass anybody. How many promises have you memorized? Well, if you're out at your job or you're driving down the freeway or you're anywhere in the world carrying out your, your business, your career, and something happens and you need to claim a promise, if you haven't memorized it, if not, it's not in your soul, then you can't claim a promise. Every example that we have in Scripture of the Lord Jesus Christ claiming a promise, he quotes the passage. He doesn't say, well, Lord, there's this principle over here, and I want to hold you to this principle. The Lord actually quotes the verse verbatim. That's, how, that's the starting point of the faith rest drill. So if we're going to uh, trust in God's word, we need to know it. Same thing with singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Somebody's going to say, well... That's making melody in your heart. See, we don't need to sing at church. I've heard this before. Let's just get to the real core issue, which is learning the Word. Okay, so you're driving down the freeway, and you want to make melody in your heart to the Lord. How many hymns can you sing all the way through? How many, outside of Amazing Grace in the first verse. If you don't learn them in church, then you can't fulfill 
that particular verse. You can't worship the Lord through song in your own life. You don't know any hymns or spiritual songs, right? So we have to learn these in church. That's what churches used to do a little more traditionally or historically, let me say, is that uh, back uh, in decades gone by when churches would have uh, consistent evening services, often what would take place is that this would be the time when they would say, okay, we're going to learn a new hymn. And they would teach the various parts to the uh, people in the congregation. They would learn how to sing the, uh, the hymn. And over a period of three or four weeks, they would sing it again and again and again until everybody had learned it. And then they would go to a Sunday morning service and sing it. There was this uh, understanding that uh, if we're going to sing, it needs to be done well. There needs to be quality in our music. Uh, we're not going to just sing songs uh, spontaneously on Sunday morning. We're not going to simply put words up on the screen uh, so nobody has any clue what the music is. Of course, now we live in a time when people aren't taught to read music. But there was a time when people were taught to read music. And that also came out of a Christian culture because... The framework was that we need to learn how to read music so we can learn how to sing hymns to the glory of God. Same reason people learned to read, period, was so that they could learn to read God's Word. If you go back to the 1680s in Massachusetts Colony, the uh, lowest literacy rate in any village, any township in Massachusetts was 96%. That was the lowest literacy rate. Why did everybody have to know how to read? Not so they could do business. Not so they could get on the Internet. Not so they could text message. But so they could read the Word of God. So we had a culture at one time where people were taught to read so they could read the Word of God. No, yes, that will help you in business. But they were also taught to read music so they could open a hymnal and read the different parts and could sing music to the honor and glory of God. And these kinds of things have been, uh, have been somewhat lost because we have uh, so uh, diluted our concept of worship. And then in just a, this kind of perverted thing, we, we try to redefine worship as singing. So we're not going to t- teach anybody what the music is. We're just going to put some words up on, a, on an overhead and let everybody kind of guess at what the music is and what the parts are. And then we're going to say, well, that honors God. So we just have a lot of problems with all of this. Mu- worship starts with a mental attitude of subordination to God. We see this in the Greek words. The first Greek word that is used is proskuneo. This is equivalent to the uh, to the Hebrew word hayah, meaning to bow down and prostrate and worship. It originally meant to kiss, and it had eventually had the idea of showing uh, kissing someone in a formal setting to show respect for someone in authority, to worship or to prostrate oneself before a superior. This word is used 59 times in the New Testament, always in relation to God, and it's used 24 times in Revelation. And just as I pointed out in our study of angels, when you find a word that is used this many times in a book like Revelation, we need to pay attention to it because if we're going to go anywhere in the Scriptures to get a doctrine of worship, it will come out of this one book, the book of Revelation. Second word that's used in the New Testament is equivalent to the Hebrew word abad. It's latreia, which has the idea of serving and worshiping God. A key verse for this is Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, the reason he says to present your body isn't, he's not making a distinction between body and soul, but by talking about body, he includes the soul, and he's saying what we are to do in worship is to present everything in our life to the, uh, and to submit it to the authority of God. So it's not just abstract thought, it is everything that we do in life is supposed to be subordinated to God because we recognize as believers that our primary uh, purpose as creatures is to serve God. But to serve God, you have to know who God is. 
You have to know what he's done. You have to know who you are as a creature. All these things come into play, which means we have to be students of the Word of God. So this leads to a definition of worship that we'll develop more next time, but it's a long definition, and uh, we'll break it down next time. But I define worship as submitting or subordinating my opinions, preferences, thoughts, philosophy of life, finances, politics, emotions, relationships, attitudes, actions, time, priorities to the authority of God's Word. I don't think I left anything out. If you think of something I left out, let me know and I'll add it. Thus, worship is a complex idea which involves a number of aspects, from private prayer to public expressions of thanks, the singing of hymns which reinforce and reflect on God, His person, and works. It also includes bringing sacrifices and gifts to to personal Christian service, the whole uh, spectrum there. Worship can be both individual and corporate. We may sometimes be emotionally stimulated by worship, but that is not to be confused with worship. That is simply a response. Worship is something that is more objective. So we will come back next time as we develop this idea and begin to take a look at specific examples of worship in the Scripture so that we can extrapolate eternal timeless truths that we can apply to our own uh, corporate worship with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we are so thankful that we have Your Word because it is Your Word that teaches us who You are, what You have done. It is Your Word that teaches us what worship is and that worship is a response to our understanding of who You are and what You have done, specifically in terms of our salvation and secondarily in terms of everything else in our life. For as we come to understand our salvation, we recognize that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but that you have provided a perfect salvation through the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And this is a salvation that is free to all, but it is up to us as to whether or not we accept it. Salvation is a free gift. And if you were here this morning and you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, you have never accepted that free gift, and this is your opportunity. Apart from Christ, every one of us is helpless and hopeless. But Christ is the one who gives us new life. He gives us new meaning in life. He gives us a new destiny. And only by virtue of our relationship with Christ do we understand who we are and what our purpose in life is. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, this is your opportunity to do so. At the instant that you believe that Jesus died on the cross for you, paid the penalty for your sins, God the Father imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Christ and declares you righteous. At that instant, He regenerates you and gives you eternal life, which can never be taken from you. At that instant, you become a child of God, and it is your opportunity then to have genuine, true worship. Father, we thank you for what you have taught us in the past, what you are teaching us in this series. We pray that we might learn to subordinate all that we have and all that we are to your authority. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.